Angalóra, Alkrókar, Auðnakarta, Álfabikar, Ákumerla, Bakkafleða, Barðarslemka, Bakkadorpa, Bakkadyrkja, Bakkamerla, Level 2, Lake and Lab. What is that? Um, excuse me. Hey, what's up? What is that? Uh, I think it's lichen lab or something. No, what are, what are they? What are they doing? I'm not too sure, but you should talk to Dr. Josephine Mills. Okay, just down this way. Yeah, I think just in that room there. Thanks. Uh, hi, Dr. Mills. I was told that uh, you were the person who talked about Lichen Lab. Yep, that's true. I'm the director curator of the University of Lethbridge Art Gallery, and I'm also the principal investigator of what's actually called Level 2 Lichen Lab. And this is my colleague, Louise Barrett, who is a Canada research chair. Don't say that. No! <laughs> Just say I'm a professor in the psychology department. Yeah. And a professor in the psychology department here at the University of Lethbridge. Hello, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Eva. So, so there's no Moss Lab. Level 2 is actually a reference to a book by the philosopher and cognitive scientist Alvin Noe called Strange Tools, um, Art and Human Nature. Okay. Um, do, you, do you know Alvin Noe? Not personally. Uh, but you've read his work. No. <laughs> I guess you got his bluff there. <laughs> <laughs> the level one activity that we all engage in, he, ta he's, he talks about how we have organised activities and everything we do is an organised activity. Many of the things we do are organised activities. So he starts off his book with this example of a woman breastfeeding her child and how, how that's an organised activity. And then uh, he says what art does is that you take those kinds of organised activities that we all engage in every day and you you give people a way to reflect on those things. You take it out of its ordinary everyday occurrence and you put it in a new space and, and, and deal with it in a different way. And then you reflect on those things. So that, you know, you have dancing and you dance around your kitchen and then you have choreography, which is kind of the, the art of dance. And then once you have choreography, it leads you to look at the ordinary activity of dancing in a different way. So it's kind of this circular thing. So the level one is just our everyday organized uh, activities. And then the level two is the way art takes those activities and reorganizes them and leads us to look at them in a different way. And that's, and that's what we think we're doing. That's how we well, that's, see. Yeah, that's what we're hoping we're doing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, then, so then it's a way for you guys to look at the art uh, in a different context to kind of make sense of the regular stuff that we do as people. Yeah, so it's so sort of like when people go to the gallery, you look at that as an organized activity, going to the art gallery, what is it? What does it mean to go to the art gallery? That's that's the organized activity. And then we're studying. And then when we do the, the scientific study of it, that's kind of the level two thing. Now we look at the ways people do that in a different way. And then does that feed back into how we can think about the everyday organized activity that people engage in when they go to an art gallery? And then from my side, there's that part. And there's also like the bigger picture yeah. that as a gallery director, one is constantly having to justify the existence of art galleries and what is the public value what is it that they're doing so it's a way to talk about art that, that when one does have that fabulous experience in an art gallery that is what's going on is yeah. it, that you're going to this level too that the art is helping you to 
contemplate about an idea or sparking a discussion or leading to a whole new perspective. And so that there's, um, there's for us within the, within Lichen Lab that we want to also look at that bigger picture as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Our uh, name of our lab is partly inspired by the symbiotic nature of the plucky lichen. And we sort of nicked, we nicked the idea a bit from another research group. Like there's a Matsutake Worlds research group, which works on the Matsutake mushroom. So they're a, they do multi-species ethnography. So they look at how people pick the mushrooms, who eats them, how they're transported. They look at the mushroom itself. And then they have this, they draw their inspiration of how they collaborate from the way the mushroom grows. And so that's what we've done as well. We found like that, that lichens are these symbiotic organisms. They're an algae and a fungi. And they have, you know, an algae and fungi are very different, but they come together to form this new kind of organism that has its own characteristics that allow, and, and, and what those characteristics do are, are allow it to thrive in places where other yeah. organisms can't. So like, instead of being like hung up on, is it interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary? We're like, we're leaving that behind. We're yeah. symbiotic. Yeah. So we're doing this art science alliance and it has its own specific, it's a specific new uh, thing that yeah. it's not just the sum of the parts. Yeah. So they're like, like, it's like a very heavy handed metaphor. Okay. So then, so then you guys, um, Inspired by Alvanoi and the mushroom people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And lichen. And, 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 lichen. and the lichen. So you, you guys are, the lab is studying what exactly? Well, what we're looking at, well, our current focus is looking at public engagement in art galleries. So what does that actually mean? Because as soon as I said that, you're like, mm, probably. Like there's that, it's a term that's getting used a lot, but it's not actually clearly understood. And it certainly isn't understood what, it looks like when it's successful. And we're looking at art galleries as social spaces. That's a big thing that I've learned from, from the kind of work that Lou does. So then you're the science algae to the art, to your art fungi? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. definitely. <laughs> <laughs> that is how we usually introduce ourselves. They were a Halloween Hi, costumes. I'm art fungi. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we go trick-or-treating every year. <laughs> but surprisingly, people slam their doors when they see us. When when people say lab, I'm thinking of like... And you're thinking lab, yeah, test tubes. A lab is a sort of place of exploration. I think that's what we're, we're thinking of the, of the art gallery as a place of exploration that we can look, um, that we can look at people's behavior and try to understand it in the context of the gallery itself. And, and just to also have a different view of the gallery. So a lot of the other things you do is to try and take the gallery to people and see how they respond and see what the difference is when you're dealing with the art gallery as a particular kind of place and then the art gallery as a, as a particular kind of process, I suppose. And we partner, we partner with artists as, as well. So we have a long-term research relationship with um, currently with about three different artists. Yeah. And, and one is uh, Lisa Hermer and the group Dodo Lab. So the, I mean, I think 
you know, mentioning people like Lisa, I found that really useful because, I mean, Lisa does do those things where she goes into the scientific literature and, and you know, for the kinds of things she's interested in. She's very interested in environmental problems and how our the human response to that. And we also work with artist Jennifer Wanner, who's interested in the Anthropocene and has done a lot of research in, into those kinds of things. So I've been inspired by the fact that we have artists who take the scientific literature and apply it to their artistic practice. That gets much less attention than people sort of taking their science to art, do you know what I mean? And having nice yeah, multicolored yeah. brains and all those those sorts of things. And right. so then we realized that another thing that we could do was to understand how artists use science and how we can look at, at science through art. And then we thought we actually can do science in the art gallery because there isn't a study in the whole of Canada, and there never has been, of what people actually do in art galleries to understand what their behavior is while they're in the gallery. Like it's none one, in the whole country. No, yeah. and it's one of the things that, as a, as a gallery director, that just drives me crazy is the statistics that we have to send in for grant reports, things like that, are so minimal and so miss the point. So you do door counts, like how many people come through the door. Um, you do... I mean, just these really basic kind of information. And it doesn't tell you what kind of experience they had. It doesn't tell you whether it was successful. Uh, it doesn't tell you anything about what you could do again or what you should avoid doing. So that none of that's being caught. And in fact, like the, the joke that I have is that if you're trying to like achieve cultural diversity, like say have more indigenous people, that you really could just rent a bus and promise them all free pizza and then say, oh, we had 50 indigenous youth in the gallery. and But they were just standing around eating pizza. Yeah. And that yeah. There would be no difference on your statistics between that and a, a you know a group of indigenous youth who came and actually had some kind of inspiring and engaging experience where they really got something out of it and it helped them think about their their lives or imagine a future where they were artists or they were you know curators. So this is what you guys study, Louise. Do you just f follow the patrons around with a notebook while? Well, Josie <laughs> tours them around the art gallery. No, or? no, we have got we've got graduate students who can do all that stuff. Yeah, so we have um, we have three PhD students working with us. So we have Miranda Lucas and Leela Armstrong and Maria Madaki. And as well, we're also working with um, Christine Clark, who's a designer and new media professor. We all worked together on a previous project called Complex Social Change. Well, Lou, Christine, and I worked together on a previous project. It was a research project that asked questions around activism, like how do we make change? How do we, how do people become activists? And how is activist engagement sustained? That's Christine Clark. She's the designer on our team. And she was a grad student when we worked on complex social change and is now faculty. At the time I was doing my MFA, uh, looking at visualizing temperature data um, related to climate change. And so with that, I was thinking about how we over, overcome data literacy, information apathy, and bias related to socially significant issues like climate change. So I worked with new media student Caitlin Yee to make the Lichen Lab website. And I'm also overseeing the knowledge mobilization uh, part of the project, which sounds super academic-y, but really it's just about what making sense of what we're doing for other people. So you're like the apothecium of the lichen. Yeah, kind of. But it's important not to get lost in the lichen metaphor. It's not like Voltron. We don't have to be all different parts of the thing. But yeah, aside from me, Lou, Josie, and the grad students, there's also 
the workshop. Yeah, so this spring we had a group of artists and academics uh, come together, and uh, there were different artists that I'm working with in the art gallery, and just really had a sense that these were people who all needed to meet each other. You actually heard one of them in the hall before you came in. Oh, the Icelandic chanting? Well, it wasn't really chanting, but yeah, that's Gunhildur Hoaxdóttir. Uh, she's an artist from Iceland who works with the combination of drawing and music or sound, as well as with performances that involve collaborating with uh, small groups of people in a specific community. What I've been playing with for like something like two, three years is spatial recordings and ways to compose kind of pieces of music, actually, but spatially, like through, I choreograph the voices through a room, in a room where it's recorded, according to drawings. For our workshop, Gunhildur proposed reading all the names of the lichens that grow in Iceland. So reading all the names in Icelandic. And yeah, she was the only one there who spoke Icelandic. She said it would take 12 minutes because she'd practiced it. And I mean, I've met her and I've seen her work, so I knew that I'd love this, and so would the other artists, but I really wasn't sure that anyone outside the arts would enjoy it. Quite rightly. Because <laughs> when Josie told me that this is going to happen, we're going to have an Icelandic artist who's going to recite like lichen names for 12 minutes. It was like, oh, my God. You know, I like, have to get your face ready. <laughs> <laughs> and then on the day, Gunhilda stood up and began you know, reciting the names of these lichens. And it was the most amazing thing. It was wonderful. I was, I was, in that moment, I was completely converted. And the names themselves were hilarious. Even if you didn't understand Icelandic, they, they just had this, and it sounded like poetry. They had this beautiful rhythm to it. And then afterwards, Gunhilda explained what some of the um, names meant. And they were all named by one man who came up with increasingly outlandish names, obviously, as you get to, like, the 720th lichen. You're so, but they were wonderful. It was, I, was, I was completely converted in that moment, and I never would have imagined that that would have been the case. So then the workshop was just, like, weird art things and then academics <laughs> talking about stuff? It was, and that was exactly it was what it, that was. Exactly exactly what you, it was. you have just summed you, it up. You would have loved it. You should yeah. have... But uh, everyone says, you know, every academic says that the best part when you go to a conference happens in the bar and over lunch and uh, other social occasions. So we decided we'd just jump to the good parts and leave out the parts where people read their papers, um, that we wanted to be doing things and talking to each other. So we had a lot of artists there. So artists would actually, they did activities that everyone joined in. And yeah, the academics did do a bit more talking about things, but they also had it where it was engaged with doing, um, but it was also with connections. So one of the uh, artists was Ed Pian. Um, he was at the time uh, finishing up his research for an exhibition at the art gallery. And he's an artist who really thinks about how the audience uh, engages and how their body is implicated when they come into the space of his installations. And part of my project for Lethbridge for the gallery in September is that uh, I will be activating two sites. One is outside. I've uh, invited high school students to make drawings of fish, and then they'll be converted into kites. Josephine had mentioned how windy Lethbridge is, and I thought it'd be great to fly these fish in the air. So enhance the title up in the air. And then Ed introduced us to Meryl Ann Asfair. She's an environmental lawyer who specialized in working with indigenous communities on water and land rights. And she also writes poetic text that Ed uses in his exhibitions. 
And Meryl Ann gave this absolutely amazing and inspiring talk about how we think about water and how we take water for granted. And so one of the problems starts with the fact that we have this idea that we have a ton of water. Like we don't actually, especially in Canada, we have this idea, water's everywhere, we're, we're good to go, we're pretty good managers. And So another one of the workshop participants was Lisa Hermer, who for the last several years has worked under the pseudonym of Dodo Lab. And Lisa uh, and Dodo Lab are about, they are a public engagement art practice. So it's about engaging the public in public and talking to them about things to do with like public discourse and public life. So what Lisa did for the workshop was we actually did a tea leave reading. You had to sit in pairs with someone you didn't know and read each other's tea leaves. Um, but what we were reading was not personal ones, but, but thinking about future disasters and uh, how the person could perhaps respond to climate change. If you're not done your predictions, you can keep going, but your final step is to think about if the future you predicted, so say, for example, I predicted a plague of locusts uh, for my partner. <laughs> What advice would you offer them for what they could be doing right now to either prepare for that future or maybe prevent that future or maybe you'd want to uh, encourage that future? So think of your own practice and maybe some knowledges or skills that you have. What might you offer them um, as something they could do right now in relation to that future? And then, if anybody and then another person that we brought in was Jen Budney. She's a PhD student in public policy at the University of Saskatchewan, but has also worked for years as a curator in major institutions, uh, worked for as a grants officer, and edited an international art magazine. Jen's dissertation is titled The Imbecile Institution, and she's also really looking at uh, how it is, she's really looking at how art galleries do such a poor job and just ha haven't been able to resolve this in terms of having a sophisticated understanding of their audiences. I started to read people who are around, uh, the, working around the time of, of John Dewey, and one of them is Thorsten Veblen. And amongst his essays, in one instance, he called something an imbecile institution. And his definition of an imbecile institution was an established organization, theory, or tradition that promotes regressive human tendencies. So there, our galleries aren't very good at this. No, I mean... The art galleries are actually quite appallingly bad at engaging, especially with diverse audiences. And that finally, and it's really justified, that we're seeing real pressure to improve. It's coming from funding bodies like the Canada Council for the Arts. It's coming from the boards of standalone art galleries or senior administration in universities. Uh, but the problem is that there's this pressure to improve what is pr to improve public engagement, but there's no clear understanding of what exactly that means or how we would know when we were successful. One of the academics who we brought in was Tiffany Muller-Mirdal, who's a feminist geographer. Um, so I am a feminist geographer. It's uh, not a combination of words that people normally put together. Um, and so basically I look at urban change and um, marginalized communities and how uh, what the relationship is between those two things with social justice sitting at the center of that practice. In her presentation to us, um, she talked about how if you focus on the critique of the problem, you're then perpetuating the problem. When we focus on the problem or the um, uh, 
for self-proclaimed radical or critical uh, scholars, if we focus on the critique of the problem, we are continuing to invest in the problem, right? Um, so lots of different folks have talked about this. We, in fact, just did this in the practice of Lisa's activity. Um, or were challenged to not focus on the problem, but on a different kind of imaginary. And, uh, and so this is just one articulation. Um, it's trying to um, shift the framework and shift the practice to look at actually existing alternatives rather than just spending time in the kind of you know, economic geography example on the Marxian critique of neoliberal problems, right? That, that's uh, not unimportant, but if that's our only output, then we retain that um, framework um, and we, in fact, uh, don't invest energy and time and attention to the ways in which um, people are challenging that all over the place right now, envisioning possible alternative uh, solutions. So when you're, especially in terms of teaching uh, undergraduates, that you can't just teach them to rip things apart and critique it, uh, that you need to teach them to come up with posing new ways of thinking and new solutions and for them to go out in the world and be active agents, uh, helping to make um, good things happen. You study monkeys. Where do monkeys f come into this? Well, the way in which we work on the monkeys is we conduct systematic observations of their behavior. And the techniques we use lend themselves very well to the study of any behavior, including that of human beings in an art gallery. And because we're interested in... We, look, we want to understand what people do in an art gallery, not what they say they do and not what they say they do after the event. You know, we don't want the, their reflection on their experience. We want to sort of capture their experience in the moment. Right, okay. So the monkeys are the patrons. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Definitely yeah. not. Definitely. They, might, they might be the bo board members maybe. <laughs> but no, I mean, it's the thing where uh, people keep asking me, so a monkey scientist and a curator are working together. But the thing that I've really got a much better understanding from Lou and, and the grad students working with her is that the art gallery is a social space and human and non-human primates were highly social animals Absolutely. in the way we interact. And so thinking about the art gallery as a social space is absolutely essential to understanding what people do and having a much more sophisticated way of looking at the idea of engagement. Yeah. I think what we're seeing is that... Um, we, you can't just look at the art and how people are responding to the art. You have to look at how people respond to the art in conjunction with their response to other people in the gallery and how that influences what they get up to and how much they get out of it. So even the other thing to remember is that even when someone's on their own in an art gallery space, there's still a social activity. But the fact that there is no one there changes their behaviour quite fundamentally. And it's also the fact that the art is produced by people. The art is a social um, phenomenon. So even when you're on your own in an art gallery, you're engaging socially with, with other human beings, people who made the art, but also the people who built the art gallery and the people who guard the art, the people who, who make sure you don't, you know, nick it off the wall and run away with it. And all of those things comprise 
the gallery experience, which is fundamentally a social experience because everything humans do is fundamentally social. And that's how we're trying to understand monkey society and from that understand something of what that can and can't tell us about human society as a particular kind of primate and this seems like the perfect project to to understand something about human social life in one of the most characteristic and unique human activities which is the production of art and the appreciation of art and and in that way we we fully combine a scientific understanding of this phenomenon with a aesthetic, artistic understanding of that same phenomenon. Okay. I mean, this is all like super interesting, but there's like, there's a lot. There's, it feels like there's a lot here. <laughs> yeah. You've got some reading to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think you can also, uh, you know, it's one of the things that art galleries when they're functioning well, uh, can do, do incredibly well. And this is what I've been interested in doing at, at the University of Lethbridge Art Gallery is I come out of an activist background. I'm a lesbian, I'm a feminist, I've been very much involved in activist, um, you know, events and, and campaigns my whole, whole adult life. And I've continued doing that. Becoming direct, director curator of an art gallery doesn't mean that I suddenly stopped doing that. In fact, it's given me the resources to be an even better activist. And the majority of exhibitions that we put on are about engaging with things that people really care about. And art galleries are a, a safe public space, a space you can come to and have unofficial learning, so you're not being graded and being marked, um, where people can come and engage with ideas that have to do with things like the Ed Pian exhibition is, is looking at water uh, in relation to climate change, and that you can really contemplate those but you also have a social experience and I know when the magic happens in an art gallery when I've seen it is where you see uh, somebody bringing a friend back to the gallery they've already been to the exhibition they're saying you have to come and see this or I overhear somebody in the hall you know away from the gallery the university explaining the exhibition to someone else and saying that they had this amazing experience or they had this insight and that's the kind of thing I'd like to be able to make sure that we make happen, but also that we make it happen for a diversity of people. Yeah, this is all super interesting, but uh, I don't think I can get all of it in one sitting. Oh, well, of course. Come back again and, and read the book. Read Alvin Noe's book. I thoroughly recommend it. And then I'm hoping it's not too cheesy, but I'd also suggest that you visit our Lichen Lab website and you can look at the artist's work on the site. Okay. Uh, what's the what's the website? Lichenlab.ca. Okay. Well, I guess I'll just I'll come back and then. Uh, Please do teach yeah. me come some more of this. Yeah. The Lichen Lab podcast is produced by myself, Marvik Adiser, and the principals of Level 2 Lichen Lab, Christine Clark, Louise Barrett, and Josephine Mills. Our audio engineers are Matthew Erdman, Matt Rutterberg, and Jake Kadike. Special thanks to Lisa Hermer, Ed Pian, Marilyn S. Fair, Jen Budney, and Tiffany muller Myrtle. Funding support for this project is provided by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and Canada Council for the Arts. 
Visit our website, likeandlab.ca, for show notes and to see more about the ideas and people featured on the show. You can listen to all episodes of Like and Lab Podcast Season 1 through iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks.